Amen. We have sang the gospel in song. Let's read the gospel in his word. If you take your Bible, and if you need one, there is a pew Bible in front of you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take that, and uh, you can have it as our gift to you. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 9. We're reading John chapter 9. Listen to the word of the Lord. And he passed by. He saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors of those who had seen him before as a beggar beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. There's some irony for you. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He's of age. Ask him. So the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, 
now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For the judge for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask you simply this morning in the name and in the power and in the spirit of Jesus, open blind eyes. Open blind eyes. Let us see where we are blind to our own sin. Let us see, Lord, where we are blind to our own arrogance. Lord, let us see where we're blind to who you really are and what you can really do to those who are blind in sin, lame due to sin, those who are dead in their sin. Father, your son is the risen God. May he open our eyes to see the glories and the honor and the riches and the grace of you as the one true God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's estimated that around 25 million Americans are blind or visually impaired. Now that may not seem like a a big deal to you until you consider that Americans fear vision loss more than they fear cancer, stroke, heart disease, diabetes, and other serious health problems, according to the national opinion poll released by the American Federation of the Blind. I don't know about you, but I can hardly imagine losing the ability to see. And yet, 
That's exactly what happened to Helen Keller. Most of you are familiar with that name. Helen Keller was born June 27th in 1880 in northwest Alabama. When she was born, she was a normal, healthy girl who could see and hear. However, when she was 19 months old, she became seriously ill, running a very high fever. Most people or doctors think she was probably stricken with scarlet fever or perhaps even meningitis. And although she survived, she was left both blind and deaf, cut off from the world around her. All of that changed, though, when a lady named Ann Sullivan walked into her life. Helen was six years old at the time, and this lady would come to be known to Helen Keller simply as teacher. And Helen's life would never be the same after that meeting. A similar but more awesome encounter took place on the streets of Jerusalem near the temple when a blind man had an encounter with Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Not only would his eyes be open, but his soul would receive sight as well. Physically and spiritually blind, light would enter his eyes and light would engulf his soul. It is a truly miraculous, remarkable encounter when a blind man is made to see. In fact, this encounter here in chapter 9, as awesome as it is, it shows us what happens when people, even today, people like us, encounter Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And, and so here's what we see in this encounter. Here's the big idea, the application for us, is that when people, even today, encounter the light, some are made to see, like this blind man. While others who think they see turn away in their blindness like the Pharisees. This encounter in John chapter 9, what's interesting about it, it actually occurs immediately after the Feast of Tabernacles, which we, we learned briefly about that last Sunday in John chapter 8, where we talked about the woman caught in adultery. Now, one aspect of this Feast of Tabernacles or, or festival was a ceremony called the Illumination of the Temple that took place in the outer court of the temple where hundreds of people would gather and mingle, and oftentimes they would gather to hear Jesus teach. In the center of that courtyard, four giant candelabras were lit that were so bright that it is said that all of Jerusalem could see them. These candelabras were lit to, to remind the Jewish people of God's faithfulness as a pillar of fire during their wandering through the wilderness. But now these candelabras were dark. The flames have been put out, and Jesus now stands and he declares to the crowds in the temple back in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
And so that takes place in John chapter 9. Now we come to John, I mean in John 8. Now we come to John 9. And it's almost as if to authenticate that claim that Jesus made, that he's the light of the world. Jesus now does something that had never been done before since the creation of the world. He healed a blind man from birth. Notice that chapter 8 ends in, with the Pharisees picking up stones, not to stone the woman caught in adultery, as we learned last Sunday at the beginning of chapter 8, but now here at the end of chapter 8, they pick up stones to throw at Jesus because he claimed to be God. But we're told in verse 59 of John 8 that Jesus now hid himself and went out of the temple. And immediately at the start of John 9, as Jesus is leaving the temple, why is he leaving the temple? Because the Pharisees, these religious leaders, are seeking to kill him. And it says immediately here in verse 1 of John chapter 9, as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. Now just stop and let that moment, that sink in. Because it's actually quite remarkable as well. In the face of opposition, in the face of hostility, Jesus does not stop ministering to those in need. As Jesus was leaving the temple, he saw a poor blind man begging, and he stopped to help him. And so not even the threat of death hinders Jesus from encountering this man. Now in that day, about the only thing a blind man could do to survive was to beg. And so this blind man does just that. He stations himself right outside the temple, depending on the mercy of others to try to eke out somehow the meager existence in that life. Jesus sees the blind man and encounters him. And let me tell you, it is an encounter that forever changed his life. In fact, through that encounter, because of that encounter, as a result of that encounter, this blind man now sees three things. And the first of which is this. Notice number one in your notes. A blind man sees the works of God. Notice how John describes this blind man again in verse one. John simply says he's a blind man, but he's one from birth. Now, that means his sight did not deteriorate over the years. It's not like he had 20-20 vision, and then one day he decides, I'm going to disobey my mom and dad and stare at the sun, and he's suddenly blinded. No, since the day he was born, he was unable to enjoy the gift of sight. And so darkness is all that he's ever known from the moment he entered the world. And this blind man shares an important detail about his blindness when he says later on in his questioning with the Pharisees, and he answers them in verse 32, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And so what that tells us, that immediately at the beginning of this encounter, this blind man fully understands that he is blind for life. In other words, healing, being miraculously healed from this, is not on his mind. 
nor has it ever been on his mind. It's not on his radar since it has never happened before since the world began. So the life of this blind man is one of sitting and begging with no hope of ever seeing the beauty of creation. But that's when the creator sees him. Jesus noticed this blind man. This blind man did not notice Jesus. Why? Because he was blind. And I say that, I make a point of that, because his blindness is actually a picture of our lostness in sin. It depicts mankind's lost condition in sin and our complete need for the Savior, the light of the world. You see, you did not seek after Jesus. You might have thought you did. I'm really seeking after Jesus now. But but the Bible says no one does. No one seeks after God. Why? Because we are spiritually blind and we are incapable of doing so in our sinfulness. It's not until Jesus opens our spiritual eyes that we begin to seek him out. But he is first seeking us. He's first noticing us. And Jesus takes notice of you and he seeks after you. And I assume that for most of you, you have been found by Jesus and you belong to him now as you have responded in saving faith. So Jesus sees, he notices this blind man from birth. But what happens next is rather interesting. When his disciples ask Jesus a question here in verse 2. Rabbi, which simply is a, a term I respect, a term for teacher, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Now, unlike Jesus, the disciples are moved here not to help the man, but to talk about the man. They make this man's suffering from blindness a point of discussion rather than an opportunity for compassion. The Jewish rabbis in that day taught that, and I quote, there is no death without sin, there is no suffering without iniquity. Therefore, many of the Jews of that day believed that any disability, any sickness, and any suffering related to that sickness and disability was somehow the direct result of some particular sin in a person's life. And so buying into the the common view, the worldview of that day, the disciples now seek to know the cause for this man's blindness. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? And notice Jesus' answer here in verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So notice this. We might phrase it this way. When the disciples speculated on the cause for the man's blindness, Jesus informed them of the purpose for the man's blindness. And that purpose, Jesus states it clearly, is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so when the disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind, Jesus could just as well have answered, well, Adam sinned. You see, it's true that someone sinned. But that someone was Adam, according to Romans 5.12. It was not the man 
or his parents. Now, that, that doesn't mean that this blind man never sinned. It doesn't mean his parents never sinned. What Jesus means by that is that this man's blindness is not a judgment on some particular sin that either he or they committed. But in the larger biblical context, in the larger biblical perspective, it all goes back to Adam, whose sin brought misery into this world. And caused this whole world to suffer under a burden of judgment that started in the Garden of Eden and continues even today. So what is the purpose for this man's blindness? Well, Jesus says very plainly that the works of God might be displayed in his life. You see, this man was born blind so that at the right moment... Jesus could intervene in his life and and show his divine power by healing him. We might say it this way. In other words, this blind man is a miracle waiting to happen for the very glory of God. Now understand, again, this blind man had no idea he was about to receive his sight. When he woke up that morning, he had no idea that Jesus was going to heal him for the glory of God. But as Jesus says in verses 4 and 5, look at it with me again in your Bibles. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. In other words, the time to do this is now. It is urgent because night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And of course, in those statements are implications of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. And so for the second time now, Jesus declares that he is what? That he is the light of the world. And now, to illustrate that, to, to prove this very truth, he does a miracle. He opens the eyes of this blind man. Look what Jesus do, did in verses 6 and 7. Having said these things, what things? That I am the light of the world. He spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, you just got to admit, that is a rather bizarre way to heal a blind man. I mean, Jesus spits on the ground, he makes some mud pies, and he puts it in the man's eyes. You might say he never saw it coming. I know that was bad. But the question remains, why, why did Jesus do it that way? Why, why make mud pies and put, him on, put it on his eyes and then go tell him to wash in this pool? Well, there have been many, several guesses, many guesses, several guesses, speculations about why Jesus did it this way, but, but no one is told. We're not told as to why. John doesn't tell us. But for me personally, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis when God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, and then John says of Jesus, back in chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made through him, speaking of Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so in other words, John is telling us that Jesus was there at creation. He was part 
of the one who created the world. And so as the creator, Jesus is now opening the eyes of this blind man in a very bizarre way. Mud on the eyes. And then a command to go wash it off in the pool of Siloam. Now what amazes me most is not so much the miracle. As amazing as the miracle is. I mean, it had never been done before. But what amazes me most is this blind man's, his willingness to do what Jesus said. Don't miss that. And so he went and he washed and he came back seeing. So you got spit, mud, and water. This blind man responds to that. He responds to Jesus with obedience. And what happens? He comes back receiving a miracle from Jesus. But why go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent? Why would Jesus tell him to do that? Well, you have to remember that Jesus insisted, he he claimed that he is the one who is sent by God to bring light to the world. And now what does he do? He sends this blind man to the pool of Siloam, which means sent. In fact, that is the same pool where the priest drew water during the Feast of Tabernacles to signify God's supply for the Israelites during the wilderness, where Jesus said earlier in John chapter 7, verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And now to back up those two claims, you say, what claims? Jesus is saying, I am living water, and I am the light of the world. And now to authenticate them, to back them up, to to give proof to them, Jesus now sends this blind man to that very pool to wash, and in doing so, what happens? He receives his sight. Did this blind man know that's what was going to happen? Did he have any guarantees of that? No. Listen, read the, see it in the story in the encounter. Jesus never told him that washing his eyes would heal him. Yet, nevertheless, he obeyed Jesus anyway. He goes, he washes, he comes back seen. This man born blind encountered the light of the world. And now he sees what a miracle and what a stir it caused when his neighbors saw him. They can't believe what they're seeing. They're amazed and astonished, just like we would be. And yet they are also confused and puzzled, just like we would be. But most of all, the neighbors are skeptical. You see, they could not fathom that such a healing was even possible, and so they refused to believe what their eyes were telling them. Notice their response in verses 8 through 10. Look at it. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. Another said, no, 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 but it is like him. He kept saying, listen, I'm the man. It's me. Yes, I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? And now they're asking the wrong question. Wrong question. 
listen, blinded by their own skepticism, the neighbors focus on how the blind man can see rather than on the very one who had given him sight. You see, this question, how, is the question we all like to ask in life, is it not? That and why. Those are our two questions we always ask. Why God? How God? In fact, this question of how is actually repeated four different times throughout this encounter. How, 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 how. They go on and on ad nauseum asking the question of how. How did this miracle occur? How could this be possible? And it's the wrong question. The right question is who? 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 You see, they're trying to figure out how it's possible this man born blind can now see. Well, if you know the who, you will get to the how. But if you keep trying to figure out the how, you'll never get it. Listen, you need the who to make sense of the how. And so the blind man tells his neighbor, not how, but who, in verses 11 and 12. Look at it. He answered, the man called Jesus. It's the who he focuses on immediately. He made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? He said, I don't know. But what's interesting about these neighbors, they're so skeptical of this miracle that they, they're willing to believe it's even a case of mistaken identity rather than believe that this man born blind can now see. And so now they did what any good Jew in that day would do. According to verse 13, it says they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Why? Now, why take him to the Pharisees? Because in that day and age, they were the religious leaders. And when something miraculous would take place, you took them to the religious leaders so they could verify the miracle, whether it was real or not. And that's exactly what is getting ready to take place. On a day when a blind man sees the miraculous works displayed in his life, it now leads, and this is sad and unfortunate, it now leads him to see the wickedness of these Pharisees. You see, what should have been the occasion of a great celebration now becomes the occasion for this grand investigation and even an evil interrogation by these Pharisees. It plays out three ways where you see their wickedness. First of all, you see it in their twisted minds. You see their evilness, their wickedness. We, we might even say their sinfulness through their twisted minds. You see, the Pharisees distorted and twisted the truth to serve their own purpose and agenda. Now, again, we've already seen this. We saw this last Sunday in John chapter 8 when they caught the woman in adultery. And they, they threw the law of Moses at Jesus. And again, there they twisted and distorted the law of Moses for their purposes. And now they're doing the same thing again. We're told in verse 14, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. You see, that's what really rattled their cages. It wasn't so much that Jesus performed a miracle. Yes, that bothered them but that he had performed it. He had the audacity to do it on the Sabbath. 
But you need to understand, Jesus did not violate God's law regarding the Sabbath. He only violated that of the Pharisees' policies. You see, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, God's law taught that on the seventh day, you shall not do any work. But the Pharisees took it upon themselves to to define in minute detail what was and was not, quote, work. In fact, going on to spell out 39 categories of, quote, work that they said violated the Sabbath. And so once again, we see that the Pharisees are distorting God's truth. They are twisting God's law. They took God's Sabbath day of rest and they made it a burden for God's people instead of a blessing as God intended. They used the Sabbath for their own purpose rather than for God's purpose, which was to promote self-righteousness instead. Or they used it for their purpose of promoting their own self-righteousness rather than promoting God's grace. Now, you need to understand, this is not the first time that Jesus had crossed the line of their Sabbath blue laws. Earlier in John chapter 5, Jesus healed a lame man on the Sabbath. In fact, you come to find out as you read through the Gospels, Jesus performed many miracles on the Sabbath that irritated the Pharisees. And now Jesus, once again, has violated their Sabbath blue law by working on the Sabbath. You say, how did he work? He made mud pies that crossed their Sabbath law. And he healed on the Sabbath when it was not a life or death situation. But the Pharisees had a problem on You see, although Jesus broke their Sabbath blue laws, he did heal the blind man, and they had to deal with that. And so hoping to now discredit the healing, the Pharisees interrogate the man with all these questions in verses 15 through 17. Look at it once again. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, listen, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see." Pretty simple, pretty clear, right? Some of the Pharisees said, well, well, this man's not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said, again, to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, well, he's a prophet. Which leads us now to their cold hearts. So you see their twisted minds And now their cold hearts come out about it. These cold hearts, the Pharisees show no concern for the blind man and no joy that he can now see. Now here's a question. What kind of people don't rejoice when a blind man is healed? Think about that. What kind of people in life don't celebrate, don't get excited Don't rejoice when a blind man is miraculously healed. I'll tell you the kind of people. People who prefer their policies over people. That's who. 
And this comes through in their absence of joy at the miracle the blind man had received. Because nowhere do they show the slightest appreciation for the wonderful blessing that a man born blind had been given his sight. James Boyce puts it this way. The man had been blind for the whole of his lifetime, and now he was healed. We might expect the Pharisees to have rejoiced with him, but did they? Not at all. Instead, we see them dredging around the dark recesses of their minds to discover what they can do about this unfortunate event. We might even imagine the look on their faces as they now heartlessly ruthlessly interrogated this man who had just experienced a great miracle in his life. Their their interrogation, though, has gone nowhere. In fact, if anything, the interrogation has gotten worse. And so the Pharisees call in the man's parents and interrogate them. Now, you need to understand, in this encounter, the parents were simply pawns. Just as the woman caught in adultery was a pawn in the Pharisees' hands. And they would become victims if their testimony threatened the Pharisees' position or narrative in any way. Therefore, instead of exalting Jesus for healing their son, they answered as evasively as they could in verses 19 through 21. Look at it. They called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? And notice how his parents answered. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. So they acknowledge that truth. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Do you find that a little odd? Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Now, you got to admit, this is not a very noble response by the parents. In fact, there's no mistake in it here. These parents abandoned their son to face the music all on his own. But it was a very predictable reaction to the Pharisees' intimidation. So why, why, though, did the parents throw their son under the bus? Well, the sad answer is found in verse 22. Look at it. His parents said these things because they what? They feared. Fear is why they threw their son under the bus. Fear. They feared the Jews. And now what's interesting in this encounter, instead of John calling the Pharisees the Pharisees, he now changes his terms and he calls them the Jews from here on out. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And so what these parents feared, what they were afraid of is being excommunicated from the synagogue, which means you were socially ostracized from society. You could lose your job, you could lose your family, you could lose your standing in the community, and they feared that. And so out of fear, the parents turned their son over to these pharisaical wolves, saying in verse 23, he is of age, you ask him. Now fear That is a very paralyzing foe, is it not? It is an intimidating enemy. We have seen fear play havoc on people's lives in the last two years like never before. It can cause us to be silent 
when we know we should speak. Fear can cause us to lie about what we know to be true. Fear can cause us to turn our backs even on those we love. It can even lead us to deny Jesus like fear did with Peter. Fear is a great thief. Fear will rob you of many things. And it has robbed people around the world in the last two years of many, many. In context of this story, of this encounter, fear robbed these parents of joy of their own son's miraculous healing. And it can rob you of the joy of your own salvation as well. We not only see their twisted minds, we not only see their cold hearts, but we also see in the Pharisees their their hardened wills. The Pharisees outright refused to believe that the blind man was miraculously healed by Jesus Christ. You see, it seems that the Pharisees are just hell-bent on dismissing the validity of this miracle to the point that they refused to believe the evidence that proved otherwise. This is made clear in verse 18. Look at it. The Pharisees, who John now calls the Jews, they, they did not believe that he had been blind. Wow. Talk about hardened wills here. They didn't believe he had been born blind, had been blind, and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. That means that after speaking with the parents, these Pharisees did know that a miracle took place. They did know that Jesus healed him, that he did receive his sight, but they refused to acknowledge it. Even in their hardened wills, they refused to believe, and they sought only to suppress the truth about Jesus. So what did the Pharisees do next? Well, you got it. They, they interrogated the blind man again. Notice what the Pharisees said to him in verse 24. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. What man? Who's that referring to? They're referring to Jesus Christ. Can you imagine them saying that? How foolish of these Pharisees to claim that they themselves know that Jesus is a sinner. This showed their utter arrogance. It showed their false intellectual confidence. The Pharisees regarded themselves as the judges of truth. And as such, they were always saying, always claiming, we know, we know, we know. They were the elites in the Jewish community. We know better than anyone else. We know what is best for you. You need to believe us and trust us only. The fact is, these Pharisees didn't know diddly squat. They did not know Jesus. They were spiritually blind by their hardened unbelief. And so the Pharisees called this blind man to give glory to God, which is just another way for them to say, you need to tell the truth. And that's exactly what he did in verse 25. Look at his beautiful. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know That though I was blind, now I see what a powerful, spectacular testimony. One thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. Whereas the Pharisees bragged, we know, we know, 
We know this blind man whom Jesus healed admitted what he did not know. But there was one thing that he did know with certainty. I was blind, but now I see. His encounter with the light of the world is the one thing that he knows for sure. Can he explain it? No. He can't explain the miracle. But neither can it be denied. I see. And and Jesus, this one is a prophet. He's the one who did this for me. The late Adrian Rogers once said, a Christian with a glowing testimony is worth a library full of arguments. And so his answer launches the Pharisees into a, a series of questions that he's already answered once before, but now with sarcastic wit, this poor beggar turns the tables on the Pharisees. It is quite something. Notice it in verse 26. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already. Can you hear the frustration in his voice? And you would not listen. Sounds like parents talking to our kids. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And that question is beautiful. Verses 28 and 29. And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Verse 30. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In other words, I would not be standing here today as this living, walking testimony of a miracle of what he just did. I'm a blind man who now sees. The man's logic, it is irrefutable. His argument, it is undeniable. And how do the Pharisees respond? Oh, you can only imagine. Look at it in verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. You see, faced with the evidence that can't be denied and embarrassed by this poor nobody, the Pharisees did what wicked people often do when they lose an argument. They attacked the man. You were born in utter sin, which takes you all the way back to the beginning of the disciples' question, whose sin, this man or his parents? You see, these Pharisees still believe in that common view. You were just born in utter sin. That's who you are. They attacked him because they couldn't have a debate with him. They couldn't reason with the miracle. So you attacked the man. And then the Pharisees did what intolerant people often do when you don't fall in line with their narrative. They canceled the man, casting him out of the synagogue. You see, what should have been a day of celebration, a day of joy, has now become a day of shame and sorrow by these Pharisees. However, the day is not over yet. Look what happens in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, 
and having found him. And don't you just love that right there? Listen, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they cast him out. And what happens? Jesus found him. They rejected him, but Jesus accepted him. That is beautiful. This man born blind is now about to experience the greatest miracle of his life. Number three, we see that a blind man sees now the wonder of salvation. You see, it was Jesus who found this blind man begging outside of the temple. And now Jesus finds him again so that he can give him spiritual eyes to see the wonder of salvation. After Jesus found him, he asked him in verse 35, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And that term there, the Son of Man, it indicates the divine Savior, the Messiah, who was lifted up on the cross to die for our sin. And so this man born blind was still groping with his new sight. And so he asked Jesus about the Son of Man in verse 36. And and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And notice what Jesus does. Notice where Jesus directs his answer directs his faith. He directs it to himself in verse 37. He says, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And so now his faith, this blind man's faith is ready. His eyes, spiritually speaking, are being opened, and he's now ready to believe with everything within him when he says in verse 38, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Wow. What a miracle. A blind man is given spiritual eyes to to now see for the first time his need for Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. Folks, do you realize this is why Jesus came? This is why he is the light of the world. Jesus came as the light of the world to give a spiritual sight so that we may believe in him and worship him as our Savior and Lord. This man's spiritual journey, it is rather remarkable. You actually can trace his his journey all the way through this encounter. He says, this blind man, he says in verse 11 of Jesus that he is first what? He's just a man. He refers to him as, as a man. Nothing more than a man like you and I. But then he says of Jesus in verse 17 that he is now a prophet And then he says in verse 33 that Jesus is from God. But then the light really turned on when he comes face to face with Jesus and he recognizes Jesus is Lord here in verse 39. And as a result of that recognition, as a result of that acknowledgement of the spiritual light going on, what does he do? He worshiped Jesus, which is the only reasonable response when your eyes are open spiritually. And so what a remarkable journey to salvation. And yet at the same time in this encounter, what a very tragic contrast with those who reject Jesus Christ as the light of the world. Notice how this encounter ends in verses 39 and 40. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? 
What do you think? Are the Pharisees blind? Yes. They are in spiritual darkness here, not knowing Jesus and rejecting the truth of Jesus. That's what spiritual darkness is. And that's why we need the light of the world. It's why we need Jesus to intervene into our lives. It's why we need Jesus to notice us, to pursue us, and to find us, and to do a work that only his spirit can do in us through his people and his word. Jesus concludes by noting the the very hopeless state of those who deny their sin and their need of a Savior. Look what he says in verse 41. Jesus said to them, that is speaking to these Pharisees, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Folks, listen to me. When your guilt remains on you, and if it remains on you when you die, then you will be condemned. Judgment, the wrath of God is still on you. But it doesn't have to be that way, does it? Our guilt does not have to remain on us. Jesus came to forgive us of our sins and to wipe away the guilt from our sins. We will see that in a story after Easter where Jesus intervenes, encounters a prostitute, and he forgives her sins. So Jesus came not only as the light of the world to open up our hearts, he came to forgive us of our sins, to wipe away our shame, to to remove the guilt so that we would not suffer the condemnation and wrath of God. But as long as our guilt remains on us because we deny that we are sinners and we deny our need for Jesus Christ as the light of the world, then it remains on us and there is a sentence of condemnation hanging over us. All of this, it brings us back to the question that Jesus asked this blind man. It's the most important question that we here this morning can ask and answer ourselves. And it's simply this, do you believe in the Son of Man? You see, the Pharisees did not. They rejected it because they rejected Jesus Christ. But how you answer this question, listen to me, will determine your eternal destiny. Jesus said in John 3.36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Therefore, I urge you this morning to take this question seriously. Do not blow this question off. Do you believe in the Son of Man? As Jesus asked. If you're not quite sure, then let me encourage you to to turn to Jesus and to ask Him sincerely. Sincerely. Listen, Jesus will open your eyes so that you may believe and worship Him as your Savior and Lord. The way to eternal life is simple. It is not complicated. It is not hard. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Acts 16.31. He simply said this, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be what? Saved. 
So the question remains for all of us here this morning, do you believe in the Son of Man, the Messiah, the light of the world, who came to die for your sins so that your guilt would not hang over you and there would be no condemnation. Instead, you would be granted the gift of eternal life. Do you believe in the Son of Man? With your heads bowed, let me ask you, do you see your need for Jesus? Then respond to him in saving faith. Man, do so now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus who found a man who was cast out. And some of us are here this morning and we feel the exact same way. We feel rejected, we feel despised, we're hurt, we're sorrowful, and we are alone. And oh, how you love us, Lord. And how you find us and receive us when we come to you. And so if you're here this morning, and that is you, and you have never received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you can do so right now. You can pray something like this in the quietness of your heart, right where you're seating. Lord, I'm a sinner who needs your forgiveness. I believe you came to die for my sin and then rose again so I can have new life in you. I turn from sin. I turn to you as my Savior, and I want to live for you as my Lord. Help me to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.